All right, Saul Company. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. That's really kind. That's really kind. I love you guys too. Uh, I hope I don't cry. I, I, oh, I teared up when Tony was talking. Tony, thank you, mostly for the apology. Okay, I wasn't planning on saying this so good. I can't not. Guys, we, we as roommates, it was more than just Tony and I, we had a test to see how long it would take before Tony was forced to wash a spoon because it was like an adventure in our house. Where can you find a dirty spoon? It's like TV stand in the cupboard. I kid you not. You think I'm kidding. It was like, I, I think we found one at the back of the TV cupboard when we were cleaning out our apartment. It's like, this is nasty. It's not. <laughs> Josie Lee is a woman of grace. <laughs> All right, we'll get started. Uh, my name is Colin. If you're new to Soul Company tonight, maybe it's a little weird, uh, or that announcement went right over your head. But we're glad you're here. Uh, if it's one of yeah, one of your first few times at Soul Company, uh, just because some of us are transitioning out doesn't mean that you're not welcome here. We're not excited that you're here, and so thank you for uh, being here. Guys, you guys know this if you've been coming around Soul Company. If you're new to Soul Company, we love the Bible. Uh, we think God actually wants to speak to us. Uh, it's, the, it's something that I have loved about Soul Company when I was a student. It's something I've loved about Soul Company now working for Soul Company is that we just open up God's word. We want to hear from, from him. You don't want to hear from me. And so tonight, uh, we're just going to keep going. Uh, with, with what we've been doing this summer. We'll be in James, James chapter 2. If you have a Bible, uh, pull it out, phone, app. That's where we're going to be. Uh, but I got a question for you guys as you turn there. Uh, and my question is this. Did your parents uh, give any of you guys bogus rules when you were growing up? Like, let me give you guys a few examples. My, my parents had some bogus rules when I was growing up. Uh, maybe maybe you'll resonate with some of these. Uh, any of your parents teach you that cracking your knuckles was going to give you arthritis? Just, they just thought it was annoying. Like, they have what? what? Uh, bogus rule. Uh, if you cross your eyes too much, they'll get stuck that way? That's bogus. No way. Uh, no swimming right after you eat. You, otherwise, you'll get a cramp, and then you can't swim with a cramp, and then you might drown. It's like... I'm an elite athlete. I do not get cramps. No shot. Like the classic, don't, don't eat the black watermelon seeds. They'll, you know, grow watermelon in your stomach. It's like, okay. Stomachs are way too acidic for that. We know that. Uh, okay, this is one. Any of you guys, like your parents forced you to learn long division or a math teacher forced you to learn long division? And they always, they always said, you won't always have a calculator. It's like, I promise you I will. There's never been a day I've needed to do a math problem where I haven't had a calculator. So, uh, last one, maybe you guys will resonate with this one. The car lights on in the back seat when they're driving? Are you kidding? Guys, okay, I, I need to like really own up to this one. I didn't, I was like, I didn't debunk this one until recently. Rachel like turned on the light and I was like, oh no, we're gonna die. And then it's like, oh, I can actually see just fine. 
Uh, I like actually thought the car was going to explode. Turns out there's just a little more light in the car and you can still see, you know? Uh, but here's my one piece of advice. If you are going to turn the light on in the car, uh, just make sure you turn it off before you turn the car off and get out of the car. Otherwise, your battery is going to die. And that's never happened to me. I never turned the light on in the car. The battery died. And, but if it did happen to me and I needed someone to save me, I would definitely call Braden, Aiden, and Dave. Uh, but it did never happen to me. They did never save me. Uh, but thank you, guys, under, the, you know, under wraps. Thank you. Uh, but, guys, bogus rules. Bogus rules from parents. You, you learn that you don't have to follow them. But the question I have for you tonight is how do you react when it feels like God's giving you rules? Do you treat them like the bogus rules of your parents and just kind of like learn something different and throw them off to the side? Or do you treat them like the rules of a sport that you love? Where you're yelling at the TV to enforce what, what it says, right? What, it, what it's supposed to be like. And so that's the question we're going to answer tonight. Hopefully you can do some hard work of figuring out how you respond when it feels like God's giving you rules. So tonight, going two places. Really simple outline is two things we're going to see, two parts, two rules, so to speak. Here's what they are. One thing you can't do, one thing you must do. One thing you can't do, one thing you must do. Between those two, we'll have a, an intermission of, of sorts. We'll go somewhere else, and then we'll, we'll come back. Uh, you guys ready? James 2, last one uh, for me. Here we go. First one, what you can't, what you, oh, that wasn't supposed to be that sad. Oh, shoot. Uh, okay, James, I, I, I don't know what to say other than teaching the Bible. Uh, oh, it was never from me, guys, you know. Uh, James 2, verse 1, this is what it says. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Here's what James is saying. Someone walks into Saul Company totally dripped out. Head to toe, they got it going, you know, no crease in their shoes. They like, they like put the shoes on in from the box, from the car, on, walk right into Salt Company, they're ready to go, right? Like some of those people are walking into Salt Company and everyone's like, ah, that's the guy, right? That, that's the girl. Those are the people I want to hang out with. And the reality is that's what we do, right? Like in a room this size, our natural instinct is to look at the room, evaluate the room, and say, man, who in this room do I want to be with that's going to make me look good? That's what is happening in James 2. Who in the room is going to help advance me? Advance me socially, advance me financially, or otherwise? Who can I be with in this room that's going to do good things for me? But what James is saying is doing that, showing favoritism, actually distorts the gospel. Distorts the way God made the world to work. Because the way God sees the world is that all people are worthy of dignity, honor, and respect, and are equal in value and worth. But what we see is 
man, there are people that are actually better for me, more advantageous for me to know. At least I find myself doing it. I don't know if you do, but I know I find myself doing it. And by pursuing some people, inevitably what I'm doing is I'm counting other people out. Saying, you're not good for me. God can't use you in my life. Maybe God can't use you at all. Because by me pursuing people that I think are good for me, I'm in pushing others to the side. And the reality is that has never worked in human history. When some humans decide who is better or more favorable than others, it leads to atrocious sin. Things like genocide, slavery, racism, and other just horrific things. And I just want to stop, kind of step aside and say, man, I'm, I'm sorry if you felt that, genuinely. Because I hope you see from this text and I hope you hear from me, that is not God's heart. Things like that have no business in the kingdom of God. Because that's not how he's designed the world to work. But what I also want you to see is that the root of those sins, those atrocious sins that I think everyone in this room would say that is horrible and we should work to fight against because God doesn't like that, the root of those sins actually exists in this room and in my heart, which is that I like to pick favorites. I like to pick who I think God can use in my life. I like to pick who I want to be around or who's better for me to know. And so my question for you is this. How do you pick favorites? How do you walk into the room and evaluate the people in the room? Who are you sizing up in the room and how are you evaluating who you talk to? What circles you want to be in, figuratively but also literally? Where do you look at someone and say, man, if I had a relationship with that person, I'd have something that I didn't have before? Maybe financially, but maybe just socially. Maybe it's like, man, they get me in a, in a, in a room or a friend group or a, a social tier that I wasn't in before. What James is saying is that you were never meant to draw lines. Those lines were never meant to be drawn. That's not how God created the world to work for us to push people to the side and for us to elevate other people simply because of what they could do for us. Because what you do is you look at some and you say there's strength there and then you look at others and you say there's weakness there and inevitably and in you saying there's weakness there, you're saying God can't use that weakness. But what's so funny about the gospel, which I think you guys know, is that God loves to use weak things that we push off in order to glorify himself and advance his kingdom. Right? Like we discount God's ability to do great things in our life and in the world. By pushing people to the outside, by drawing lines and saying, you can't be a part of the groups that I'm in. So I want to tell you guys a story that I heard about this. Uh, but before I do, I just want to show of hands. How many of you guys would say you love Saul Company? Like, man, I love Saul Company. Saul Company's done so. It's not a trick question. I love Saul Company too. My hand's up. Um, no worries. Some of you guys are like, all right, so you're going to like, you know, make this weird. And this, no. Okay, guys, Saul Company hasn't always been like this. Like there hasn't always been a salt company in Minneapolis and in St. Paul and across the country and this size and with this many people that can 
uh, like love and serve you guys within the ministry, it, it started really small. And so I want to take you back to the beginning, uh, an unknown hero of the story, uh, so to speak. He's never gotten a paycheck from Saul Company, uh, but he is definitely the reason Saul Company has become what it has become. Uh, but his story started in an unexpected way. So Saul Company, take you back, in Ames, Iowa State University. Uh, so, okay, a couple Iowa Staters, welcome. How, how about that? Uh, glad you're here in, in the city. That's good for you. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're in the fields of Iowa, at Iowa State University. And momentum is building at Saul Company. And so when momentum's building, you know, uh, the, the hot shot, Iowa State basketball players start coming, right? So they're coming. People, people are just like, man, flocking to these guys. Like, these are the guys to know, the guys of influence on the campus, the, the, the people everyone wants to be friends with. But one of the basketball players brings uh, uh, one of his friends. And he's also tall. But he's like, you know, scrawny, nerdy. I'll say it, you know, like just like not like everyone's walking into the room like they're wearing their Iowa State gear. Like he's an athlete. He's an athlete. See the manager of the team like just like doesn't really fit, you know. So that, that's who he and everyone everyone wants to be friends with the basketball players. Everyone forgets about the guy with glasses. It's like a little bit nerdy, you know. He's got like a nerdy major. He's an MIS major, management information systems. If you're an MIS major, I'm sorry. Just like I hope you own that it's a little nerdy, you know. It's good. It's good. This story turns out well for the MIS majors in the room. Uh, but the basketball players stop coming because, like, they're busy. They got things going on. They got other stuff to do. So they stop coming. And so, but scrawny beanpole with the glasses keeps showing up. So, like, finally someone's like, fine, I'll be friends with him. Like, I'll talk to him. See what this guy's all about. And they befriend uh, scrawny, scrawny little tall weird dude, you know? And he comes to know Jesus. And he's his life changed by the gospel. But the story just like takes off from there. Okay, he becomes an elder of the church. He goes on to become, to start a real estate company that becomes wildly successful. And he like actually owns a lot of Iowa, which isn't saying that much. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding about Iowa. I'm really not kidding that he owns most of it. Uh, but he's just this, like, he's just this wildly successful man. But he, he's been captivated by the love of Jesus within Salt Company. And so for his entire life, he's still living. It's like weird, it's, you know, whatever. He has leveraged all of his success and poured it all back in to seeing the gospel go out in Salt Company. Like, there's a reason I didn't share his name, because I want, I, he doesn't want you to know his name as the hero of Salt Company, but he's one of the heroes of Salt Company that no one's ever heard of. Just like given everything he has to seeing the gospel go to a new place. But he was the one that everyone counted out that no one wanted to be friends with until they were forced to be friends with him. He's like the nerdy MIS major. Didn't wear the right stuff, didn't walk the right way, didn't talk the right way. But God decided to use what was weak and unimpressive to become like one of the most driving forces of a sweet gospel movement. I tell you that story because the people we walk into Salt Company and discount are often the people God is going to stir something in and are going to change this place and change the world. So maybe 
you should answer this question. How does your heart need to change? How does like your heart with, with favoritism need to change? Or maybe the question is, who do you need to pursue? Is there someone that you've been shying away from? Is there, not that you, like this person needs to be your best friend, but maybe you're just like totally denying them your time because you think you're better than them. You're just like, ah, oh, they're not like, they don't get it. They're just like not it, you know? What would it look like if this was a place where deep friendships were formed, but where there was always one more seat at the table? There was always room for one more. It was like, man, so tight. Seeing old friends at Salt Company and reaching out to the new face. What would it be like if Saul St. Paul loved and championed the grace of God at Salt Minneapolis and vice versa? Right? What, what would it be like if people from different races and socioeconomic backgrounds came together under this like banner of gospel unity? Everyone's invited. No one's pushed out. Everyone's invited. And I've seen it here. Like it's happening here. It's not complete. I want more. Like I hope you guys want more. I hope you see the grace of God, like the evident grace of God in this room. And you're just like, there's always room for one more. There's, there's not an outsider. In this room, there's not an outsider, and there's not an outsider in there that's not welcome in here. And this is, this is all under the banner of God's glory that he loves to bring the outsider in. I love how James, like the next sentence he says after this, this is James 5, or James 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. See what God does? I love this idea of redemptive reversals. That God takes what's poor and turns it into something that's abundantly wealthy. Maybe not financially on this side of heaven, but on the other side of heaven, definitely, spiritually, definitely. And so this is where I, I, I want to, kind of end point one and start the intermission, if you will. We'll, we'll get to point two, but I want to stop and, and go somewhere else really quickly. And, and that's this. I want to answer the question directly. Why do we not show favoritism? Like I kind of answered it. I was kind of alluding to it, but I want to answer it directly. Why do we not show favoritism? Well, before I answer the question, I want to make an observation. Have you guys ever found that people who are most inclusive Right, there, there are some people in this room that are just like super inclusive. You know who they are. They're, all, they're always looking out for the outsider. The people that are most inclusive are always the people who were at one point outsiders, didn't fit in, weren't in the group. Then they like get in the group and they're always looking out for the, the outsider. You guys ever notice that? I, 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 I like see that in other people. I've seen that in my own life. And how I want to encourage you and how I want to answer that question about favoritism is with this, that in a way, all of us in this room were outsiders and excluded. Because we were born into sin. We weren't born into the family of God. We were born into sin, dominion of darkness, kingdom of death. We were outside of God's family. But in humility, God chose to pursue us, to include us. That is what the gospel is, that God pursues the outsider. If God was in the business of favoritism, he would love and pursue one person that's ever walked the earth. 
His name was Jesus. He's the only person that like on his own merit could stand with God and like hang in the right circle. They're two-man show. He's the only one. But what God does is Jesus becomes the one person he rejects so that you can be the person that he accepts. That is the gospel. That with faith, you can go from an outsider to in the family of God. You can go from dominion of darkness to the dominion of the beloved son. This is the good news. That you don't have to be a stranger to God. But you can be in his family. And you can be an heir with him. Which means everything that he deserved to inherit, you get. That's because of his life, death, and resurrection. I love Ephesians 2. If you've gotten to spend any time with me, um, you likely have seen me open to Ephesians 2. I love Ephesians 2 so much, and so I had to turn to Ephesians 2. Uh, It's not going to be on the screen because I'm going to kind of jump around uh, in it. But Ephesians 2, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, because it lays this out so clearly, this gospel, this good news, that we are outsiders into the family of God. This is what it says. And you are dead in, in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. You were outsiders. You weren't included. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What is he saying? He's saying that we did what we want, and what we want is not to want God. We not only weren't in the family of God, we didn't want to be in the family of God. We ran our own way, and in fact, our own way was away from him, and then it says in Ephesians 2.4, best verse in the Bible, I think, best two words in the Bible, it starts like this. It says, but God. So you were an outsider, but God, being rich in mercy. God, being rich in mercy, pursued you. You were the outsider that he got off his throne in order to run after. Because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Qualifies it. What did you do? What did you do? How did you clean yourself up in order for God to pursue you? No, it's not what you did. It's for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. That is the good news of Jesus. That you were an outsider that Jesus chose to pursue and call his son or daughter. Heir with him. Then says it again, for by grace you have been saved through faith just repeats himself, and I want to be really clear. Because what I'm going to say next might feel like it contrasts with this, but I don't think it does. I want to be really clear. There's nothing you can do to earn the favor of God. It has been freely given to you by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing you can do. Which means, if you're in this room, scratch that. Salt Company. We talk about the gospel every week. Why? Because if you've heard the gospel a hundred times and you've believed it for ten years, you still need the gospel every week. Because every week you need to come back and be reminded that God loves you not by your merit, but because of what he's done for you. And maybe it's your first time in this room, a friend dragged you here, and what, what is this thing all about? This thing is all about us telling you that you can be in relationship with God, not because you clean yourself up or come to an impressive event like this, but because 2,000 years ago he pursued you. 
That's what we're all about at Salt Company. And so I just want to say, like, man, if you're saying, I, I think I want to do that, but I don't know how, it's just faith. It's grace through faith. Just believing that he's done it for you, and you don't have to do it yourself. Here's the thing James says next. Okay, it's back to James. Point, it's transitioning into point two. That you do not earn your adoption by action, but that action is a necessary result of your adoption. Okay, let me give you an example of this. When you adopt, when a parent's adopt a kid, I don't know, maybe some of you are adopted, and that's awesome, sweet picture of the gospel. A parent, I can picture it, right, like leaning over a crib and picking up a weak baby that has absolutely nothing to offer them other than crying and poopy diapers. It's true. It's nothing. But a parent says, yes, you're mine, I love you, and I want you in my family. But what's the hope is that that kid would grow up to represent and embody all that that family has. The values. They would represent the family well to the outside world. And that is what God is calling us to do in James 2. No, you don't earn your adoption into the family, but there is something that we call the adopted kids too. So this is what it says. Or this is point two, what you must do. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is it? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You can picture the scene, right? The holy, church-going, salt-loving kid wearing the shirt so Jesus loves you, you know? They, they got it right, and one of their buddies comes up to him and is like, hey, things are, things are actually really tough at home. And I, I had to quit my job to, like, help at home, and I just don't know how I'm going to buy groceries this month. I'm just going to level with you. It's all going, you know, Jesus-loving person says, man, I'm, I'm really sorry. That's a bummer. I'll, I'll be praying for you. I hope you can figure that out on your own. And there's something in all of us that's like, that is not how it should be. Like, all, like off-putting, at least for me. It's like, ooh, that, like that feels really wrong. But the reality is in a, in a godless, capitalistic, evolutionary-based world, that, there's no basis that that's not how it should be. Because if you're not going to give something to me, I'm not going to give something to you. But we all know that's not right. And what the beauty of the gospel does is it puts words to that. It says you are deserving of dignity and value equal in worth. And that as a believer, someone who's believed in the good news of Jesus, that he pursued me when I was an outsider, he pursued me when I was poor, I can now turn and do something about that. Even if I don't have money, I can help find someone that does to serve a need. That what God does is he justifies us by his work, but then he commissions us to be agents of righteousness to the world. To work out this like good news, what, what he wants the kingdom to be like, he commissions those who have been saved by grace to go do that. In other words, your faith should be displayed in works. But James is like really pressing into this. He's not kind of pressing into this. He's not saying you probably should do that. He's saying you must do that. Which, if you've grown up in church, that feels wrong. That's like, ah, that's, 
That's not how it should be. I think it's a grace thing, and it is a grace thing. But what he's saying is if your faith is legitimate, it will be displayed in works. Here's what verse 26 says. He says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I think James is referring to Ephesians 2, right? Where you can be physically alive but spiritually dead, and if you're spiritually dead, it's no better than being dead altogether. Because you're not, you haven't experienced what real life is like. And what James is saying about faith and works is that faith is great. Faith is required. Faith is necessary. But if that faith isn't displayed in works, it's as good as dead. Because it's not showing the true fruit of what the seed has of the seed that's been planted. So I'm gonna ask you guys a tough question. Yeah, I was wrecked by this as I was prepping this. It's not just like, ah, tough question for you. Uh, if someone saw your life but couldn't read your Instagram bio and couldn't follow you to Salt Company, would they notice something different about you? It's convicting for me because, honestly, it's not always like that for me. Man, I want my money for myself. I want to build my retirement account. I want to build my emergency fund for my emergencies. I want to save for the things I want to buy. Sometimes I'm too busy to slow down for people. I'm so focused on the things I have to get done that I can't slow down enough to love someone who needs to be loved in front of me. Complain about minor inconveniences. Prone to anxiety and worry. I don't know if these resonate with you, but these are just some that come to mind for me. Worry about what others think of me. What are people going to think about that? By myself tearing others down so that I can build myself up. My faith's not working out. Gossiping. James is saying, truly, your faith should be displayed by the works in your life. And that if it's not, it might not be that something's wrong with your works. It might be that something's wrong with your faith. Let me explain that. Uh, I was reminded of this story from last summer. Rachel and I were, were trying to plant a garden. And uh, so she had these flowers, and we uh, threw them in the ground, you know, water, the whole thing, stirred the, stirred the soil, tried to be like good people at growing, I don't know what you call them, good people at growing flowers, I don't know. Uh, they were going to be big, tall flowers. They were going to look really nice. Uh, and I was like, wow, sweetie, the, this is great. Like, they're growing like weeds. They came up out of the ground so fast. This is awesome. And uh, they got probably 12, like 12 inches tall. And it's like, man, they're not budding, but they're supposed to be tall, I'm not, it's, I'm not surprised. It's fine. Like, they, they look okay. Uh, they get, like, two feet tall, and it's like, ah, they're still not budding. This is weird. I kid you not, they get, like, four feet tall. And we realized we built a garden of weeds. <laughs> so we pulled them. Naturally, you're like, ah, weeding, backbreaking labor. Don't worry, it wasn't. They were this high, right here, right here. Uh, okay, so as I'm pulling them, I'm pulling them, right? I, ha- I have one of two conclusions I could come to. One of two conclusions. One is, I just need to wait a little longer for them to bud. Or the other, what my dear, precious, intelligent wife thought were flowers were weeds. I'm going to go with the latter. Here's, here's what I'm saying. Why do I go with the latter? Because good plants produce beautiful flowers. Apples 
grow from nourished apple seeds. Roses grow from nourished rose seeds. And a nourished Christian faith produces works. And there, and the question is, if there are not, if there is not fruit displayed, it might be a question of fruit, but it might be a question of have you planted the wrong seed? Because there's action produced from the seed of Ephesians 2. When we know and believe Ephesians 2, when that's planted in our hearts, action starts to be manifested in our lives. So what do we do with James 2? Well, James 2 becomes a mirror where we need to have an honest reflection with ourselves and we need to say, is my life a reflection of a seed that's been planted in my life? And if it is, what kind of seed has been planted? Is it a seed of genuine faith? And so for some of you, maybe you're like a new believer, this is overwhelming, there's so much you should do, so much you need to know, so many things you need to change. And I just want to say, your walk with Jesus is a little bit like a plant. It takes time. It takes, you need to nourish it. It's okay. But I think for some of us, there needs to be like a, a hard, sobering reality check of I've been following Jesus for maybe five years now or four years now, or let's even say, three, you know, two years now, and I can't really think of the last thing that's changed in my life. I can't think of the last action that's come from a place of a real, genuine relationship with Jesus. I'm just kind of coasting. And it's a sober text to say, we need to check the seed, and we need to start seeing fruit. Here's what I want to say about the gospel really quickly. The gospel is anti-earning. You cannot earn the favor of God, but the gospel is not anti-effort. We can work to see the gospel worked out in our life. We can work to produce things in our life. And so, uh, I'm going along, but, you know, here we are. Sorry. Uh, You know, fire me. (laughs) It's a joke. Uh, Okay, here's how we're going to end. Here's how we're going to wrap up. Uh, three Three ways I think your faith should work in college. Or another way to say that would be three fruits your faith should grow during your time in college. Three things. Three things I learned in my time at college and in Salt Company. Okay? So uh, that's where we're going. Here, here's what they are. Integrity, holiness, authenticity. Integrity, holiness, authenticity. Integrity. Guys, in the midst of your college career, There will be so many things offered for you to pursue, and I'm guessing there isn't one that's more prominent than influence. Become an influential person. Become smart, because smart people are influential. Get connected with the right people, because you know what they say. It's not what you know, it's it's all about who you know. And I think you'll be caught running after it, because I was. Influence. Influence. Become a person of influence. Become a a person with leadership. Become a person that people look up to. And influence isn't bad and leadership isn't bad and people looking up to you isn't bad, but it is not primary. And I think the thing that your faith should work out in you is producing integrity. So what I mean by integrity is, is that your life shifts from what you can do, what you can accomplish, to who you are becoming. The type of person you want to be. The type of things people are going to say about you that your character becomes the thing that you want to grow most in college. Not your bank account, not your accolades, not your internships, not your intelligence, but your character. 
What does that mean? You don't cut corners in class. Teacher asks you to do an assignment, you do it the way they asked. You become a person of character, small unseen decisions. In your internships or group projects, you take blame. Even if it's only 1% your fault, you take blame and you give credit. Even if you did 99% of the work, you give credit to the 1% that's due. You're always the first to apologize. You become a person of integrity more than a person of influence. And what's funny is when you become a person of integrity, influence often follows. Second thing your face should work out in college is holiness. Guys, everyone says college should be the best four years of your life, and then they present before you all the ways for your college experience to make you happy. To run after pleasure. To, to become this hedonistic creature that, that chases like this hit of dopamine every chance that they get. That above all else, you just want to be happy. And here's what I want to lay before you. Something I've found, just older brother advice. You can believe it, you don't have to. Is that the only way for you to experience the longevity of satisfying happiness and joy is if holiness precedes it. Here's what I'm saying. Here's another way to say that. Your holiness always comes before your happiness. Real, true, genuine happiness that's worth it, holiness comes first. So what does that mean? It means that you pursue obedience. It means that you're generous. With the little that you have, financially, yes. With things that you own, absolutely. With your gifts that God has given you, you share them freely with other people. That's, that's generosity. It's being holy. Holiness maybe includes including the new guy. Man, they're not as cool. They're not as fun. They make things a little more awkward, but you include them. Holiness. Getting up in the morning to spend real time in God's word, even when you want to hit the snooze button, because you know it's going to form you in the, t- the type of person you want to be. It's holiness. Saying no to a f- more fun commitment to be a person of your word. Giving up your time for the sake of serving others. I want you to prioritize your holiness because what I think you'll find is that your happiness will follow. Last one. way your faith should work out in your life is authenticity. Guys, I think culture and the church have the same problem. This is the lie they're feeding you. You need to keep your life together. You need to present this beautiful put-together picture of yourself. And I fear a message like this, where I'm saying to you, your faith needs to work itself out. What that's going to produce in you is a tendency to hide the things that doesn't feel like they've been worked out yet. Hide sexual sin. Hide the the bad habit you don't want people to know about. Hide the things that you do with your non-Christian friends. To put it in the dark because you're afraid of what people might think because faith is supposed to work. And if my faith's not working, then what do I really have in, in the end? Here's my encouragement, guys. One of the primary ways your faith should work out is by acknowledging that it's not where it should be yet. By just owning up to your shortcomings. That's not an evidence of uh, immature, small, seed-like faith. Authenticity, owning up to places you messed up, is actually a sign of a mature faith. That is faith working itself out. When you own who you really are, 
I look at that person and I say, God is doing something so special in your life, even if you're confessing a sin that's really hard. Guys, I want your faith to become and to produce in you such vulnerability because what you'll find in your vulnerability and weakness is that you were never justified by your works in the first place, but always by the grace of God. What you'll find in your weakness is that you need to be reminded of the gospel, which is the thing that will bring you back here week after week and make you fall more in love with Jesus, which is the thing that will work itself out in the end. Your authenticity produces gospel fruit in you and a need for the gospel that's so beautiful. You will realize by your authenticity that the gospel really does change everything in your life. I learned that in my life in college. Gospel changed everything. It was so beautiful, such a gift. And I want it to be the same for you. Gosh. Ah, I didn't think I was going to get emotional. Guys, authenticity is the thing that made me realize I needed the gospel. And it's the thing I came back to time and time again. Because here's what I realized. This is something I learned in college from my salt company director. It's the thing, if I could give it to you, it would be awesome. I think by the end of your college career, I hope you say this. I'm not the person I ought to be. I should have my life more together than it is. I'm not the person I want to be. I wish I had it more together. But as I look back on my four years in, in college, my four years in Salt Company, I can sit there and I can say, praise God. I'm not the person I used to be. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful for hard words because it's been hard words in my life that have produced something beautiful. It's hard words that produce something that, that's worthy of the gospel. And so God, as we hear hard words that, man, faith should work itself out, would we not lose sight of the fact that our justification has been worked out 2,000 years ago in Calvary where Jesus went where he was forsaken so that we could be included. Where you turned your face on him so that you could turn your face towards us and say, welcome, welcome to the family. And so God, would you do something special in this room? Would you so change the hearts of people in this room that they begin to orient their lives around being people of integrity, people of holiness, people of authenticity, that it would radically shape campuses in the city for the better. God, that this place would be doors open to the outsider. Because God, we were the outsider that you introduced to us. God, thanks for Salt Company. Thanks that I got to be a part of the family. Thanks that you used Salt Company to, to welcome me in. And would you do that for hundreds more, thousands more? Would you welcome in through Salt Company, God? We love you. Praise in Jesus' name.